From Equality Arizona, you're listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Gene Woodbury. Today on the show, I'm joined by Elijah Watson, a young gay man who's established himself as a kind of independent lobbyist at the Capitol. I've been able to get to know Elijah a little bit over the past few months, working together on state policy, but it was really only in this conversation that I felt like I was able to start to really understand him and where he's coming from. He doesn't have a traditional path into advocacy, and he doesn't really take a traditional approach. Yet at the same time, he's able to forge productive relationships with legislators, and he has a knowledge of local government that I think is really unique. So this is a pretty special conversation, and I want to get right into it, but stay tuned to the end for a couple of additional messages. Okay, well, thanks for sitting down with me to do this recording. Uh, I usually don't remember to ask people to introduce themselves. So could I get you to say your name and your pronouns? Elijah Watson, he, him, his. Cool. Thanks for being here. Um, So I see you every time I'm at the Capitol, I think. You're pretty much always there. Um, I know that you're there actually to to speak on quite a lot of different issues, which uh, most people aren't. There's, there's every now and then there's some people who just kind of like go to hang out and decide that seems interesting. I'll talk about it. You're much more targeted than that, I think. Um, so how, how did you get into that uh, in the first place? I think most people don't know that you can do that just kind of on your own initiative. Yeah. So last session, there was a bill called HB 2161 that Representative Kaiser introduced. And it was the bill that would have made it to where a student could basically would have to be outed to their family if they told their parents that they were of a different sexual orientation or a different pronoun. And that was like my bill of like, okay, I need to go speak on this bill. And so I'd never spoke on any bill before. I'd never been to the state legislature before. Um, But I was really mad about the bill, I think because I came from Kansas and I have like this, you know, background of like conservatism and craziness. I know a lot of people that have been um, obviously excluded and abused because of their sexual orientation. Yeah. And so I, um, I had talked to representative Lori Tarek, who at the time wasn't a representative. She was just this big organizer. Yeah. And I was like, I need you to help me get set up for this. I don't know how to do this. You know how to do this. She's like, great, go down to the Capitol, register for RTS, speak that day. So that day I skipped school, my <laughs> high school classes. I told all my teachers, I was like, I'm going down to the Capitol. I'm not skipping. I'm just like, I'm speaking. And they were like, okay, like, I don't know how to respond to this. Um, but they didn't, like, no, cause like, problems. No, like, they were okay. totally fine with it. They were like, oh, okay, like, you're not going out and, like, smoking pot or something. Like, you're going to the Capitol to speak against a bill. Like, go off, I guess. So I, I just left. Like, I left campus. I took the metro down, all the way down to the state Capitol complex, and uh, I spoke against that bill. And then I was just like, well that's it then, right? Like, that's the end of it. There was no questions asked on me, nothing. And so from then on, I had, like, this big focus on, you know, actually pushing these bills and making sure that this type of bill didn't pass. And so from then on, I did meetings with legislators. I was talking to all these people, and everybody was like, who are you? Like, are you a lobbyist or something? And I'm like, no, I'm just, like, some 17-year-old kid that's, you know, (laughs) talking to people about why this bill shouldn't pass. And I think that was really, like, my moment of... Wow, like, I I love this. I have a passion for advocacy, yeah. so. Well, I mean, 
having someone like Laura to get you connected in the first place is super helpful. But then when you go from, I'm going to speak, they're not going to ask me any questions, maybe I'm done, to I'd like to get some meetings with them. How did you make those meetings happen? I mean, they don't meet with just anyone. Yeah. So I I actually kind of, I guess, played the game a little bit. I I would do what other people want to do, right? So other people would, you know, schedule an email or, like, they would call, like, the representative's assistant. No, I went full on into getting into these people's faces right in the hallway Uh, and being like, meet with me. Let's see what happens. Like, come on, let's go, let's go have a conversation in your office. Yeah. And for the first part of it, it was complete failure. Everybody was like, absolutely not. You're a literal (laughs) child. (laughs) Like leave the Capitol. What are you doing? Um, but I think as time went on and people understood that I was actually passionate about it. And as I continued to skip school to go down to the Capitol (laughs) complex, I think people were like, wow, like this person is evidently, um, some type of lobbyist or he's some type of advocate for something. Right. We have to at least give him his 15 minutes to explain his case. And, as I met with people more and more, I guess word spread around the Capitol that I was not just some random person and that I was someone yeah. that should be listened to. I feel like also once they see you often enough, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll take you seriously. For sure. Yeah. But it does sound like your age was an obstacle at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I also think that, you know, the Capitol, like the state Capitol or state government even really, isn't meant for young people. It's meant for you have... Mm-hmm minimally a bachelor's degree or even a potentially a master's degree in public policy or something of that nature, you always should be wearing a suit if you want to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, you know, it's always done during school days. It's just not right. School, young people are not belonging in that area. So when you go as a younger person and you're basically demanding to be heard by these people because, you know, you elect them, they don't, yeah. they don't know what to do. It's very weird for them. Well, do you also feel like, given that technically you didn't elect them, you know, when you were 17, mm-hmm. was that also an obstacle? Or was it more just like, you're a kid, we don't... I, I think it was more of, you're a child, like, go back to school. And that, I actually got that response from a lot of elected oh, really? officials. Wow, okay. when I, I would go into meetings with them, and I would explain mm-hmm. my case, and I would tell them how their bills are unconstitutional. I'm, like, citing case law. I'm 17 years old, citing federal <laughs> case law from, like, 1939. Yeah. And they're like, you're not, you're not even graduated from high school. Like, go back to your classroom study your books, and then come back here when you're 25 and you have a lobbying job with, you know, insert consulting firm here. Right. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't going to stop there, and I made it very clear to everybody that um, I was there to stay, and clearly they know that now. So Yeah. Getting into those meetings then, once they start to take you seriously, were there specific people or, like, types of people i guess like i mean i know that there's i always think of legislators kind of in groups of like here's the people who kind of work this way and here's the people who kind of work this way did you notice like a particular style of legislator who took you seriously first i don't i don't know i think at the beginning and the middle of things uh of when i started meeting with people there was a lot of i think most legislators overall were anxious to meet with me like they didn't know what I was there for and even when I had explained my point to them they still didn't really seem satisfied so I think there's the anxious legislator that's like I'm not going to ask you any questions I'm just going to let you talk for 15 minutes I'll answer any of your questions 
but that's it. I'm going to let you go home, have your fun, leave, right? Right. And then there were other legislators like Paul Boyer, for instance, who Mm -hmm. would challenge me on things and would be like, well, you know, while I agree with you on ABC, what do you think of this, this, and this? Why do you think that this, this, and this should happen? And that really, I think was the unpopular type of style of legislating, I guess, or meeting with legislators was a legislator that would challenge me. I think there was only two or three legislators in that session that would Mm -hmm. ever actually be like, okay, why do you think this way? And it was Paul Boyer, J.D. Mesnard, and I don't even remember who the last one was. I think it was uh, whoever represented LD4 who, or would have represented LD4 if Christine Marsh didn't beat them. Nancy... Nancy Bardo? Yeah, Nancy Bardo. Uh, So, yeah. That's it. I mean, to me, that feels like a sign of respect, actually, Mm -hmm. if they're they're going to argue with you. Because if they don't take you seriously, why argue with you at all? Exactly. That's that's pretty cool. Um, I remember when you spoke on HB 2161, and you're a pretty distinctive person in the legislature. (laughs) Not in the way some people are, where it's like, oh, here's this guy again. But like, oh, yeah, who is this this person? What's going on here? And I think that for legislators, they also see that. And and they they like to get an impression of, is this person going to take what's happening here seriously? Are they going to offer good ideas? And it's always really fun when you get up to speak. You carry your laptop up with you. You put it down. You're like, I'm here to. I'm here to play. Like I'm. Yeah. I'm taking this seriously, but in a way that's like not the way I guess like a lot of the professional lobbyists do things. Mm-hmm. They kind of get up and they have their their prepared thing and they just kind of run through it. Yeah. Or speed talk. It's the thing I've noticed, which feels like high school debate club. But like, <laughs> what, what are you doing here? But yeah. it's a different style, and it's it's pretty cool. So, speaking of high school debate club, I mean, I'm not sure if you were ever a debate kid, but I don't think a lot of people learn how to have actual constructive debate in the way that you know has to happen in the legislature and unfortunately doesn't really happen as often as it should, but is what has to happen. Most people don't learn that really at any point in school. So how did you develop those skills? I think it was trial and error more than anything. Okay. I didn't, I wasn't in any speech and debate club in high school. Um, I'd actually tried to get into speech and debate club many times. And I remember we had a tryout in like sophomore year of high school or something like that. And it was like, Join, to join speech and debate club, we just want to evaluate your skills. And I didn't even, like, meet the minimum, like, score to get into speech and debate club. I was terrible at it. Oh, wow. Um, and so I think for me it was just going up there and testifying and even having those meetings with legislators is actually what made me grow into being, like, confident of how to present an argument and how to argue with a legislator without sounding accusatory as well was a big thing for me that I had to really oh, yeah, change about yeah. myself was – how do I basically call a legislator a bad legislator without specifically saying you're a bad legislator? Right. Um, which is definitely hard to do. But, you know, I, I think after you do so many testimonies and so many meetings and you really start to get to know the environment better, your skills gradually better over time. Well, did you have people that you would have those kinds of like arguments or discussions with before you started having them with legislators or was that really like the proving ground for you i think that was the ground that oh, wow. was really the the ground map for it i mean i i grew up in a family that is although in a very conservative environment mm-hmm. 
pretty liberal. So I wasn't arguing with family members or anything like that, or even friends about my views on things. I mean, mostly everybody that I was friends with, um, we would keep politics completely closed off. I mean, it's Kansas. You're not going to persuade a Republican to vote for Obama. So it it was just all completely a closed off environment when it came to at least politics. I see. Yeah. And did you just grow up in Kansas pretty much uh, from the beginning? And then how did you end up in Arizona? Yeah. So I, I, Grew up in Kansas, born in a little town called Bonner Springs. It has like a population of like, I don't know, 9,000 people maybe. Oh, wow. okay. um, yeah. And I, after then, I like moved into Tonganoxie. That's another town that has like 3,000 people. From then on, it just, it, eventually I, I get to down to like the populations, like 154 people. It's just crazy. Oh, wow. okay. um, but I moved to Arizona originally in middle school because my mom got a really good nursing job out here. She was a travel nurse. And she was like, let's move to Arizona. We have family down here. Let's just move down, try it out, see what happens. So I started out in Kingman. Um, I was going to go to middle school in Kingman, but then we moved to Surprise, I guess, because my mom got another nursing job. It's crazy. Uh, I guess that comes with the type of nursing. Exactly. So we we ended up moving up to Surprise. I did all of my middle school out there, so 6th through like 7th slash 8th grade. And then... In the middle of eighth grade, we moved to Tolleson okay. um, because an, another nursing job. What yeah. a shock. So we moved to Tolleson, and Tolleson was just, you know, whatever. And then my mom and me, after my parents got divorced, moved back to Kansas, stayed there for a year, and then moved back to Arizona. Oh, so okay. it's it's a really yeah. complicated, like, split on, in the moving cycle. Moving between but, a lot of different yeah. places. Um, but for the most part, Arizona has been where my... I guess, middle school, high school, like my growing up actual yeah. experience has been. The point in your life where you're like really forming those, Exactly, those, those experiences yeah. and figuring out who I'm going to be. Yeah. A lot of people don't have the experience of living in a few different places of the state like that. What was it like trying to find community in like, okay, I'm going to go to this town, I'm here for a year. How do you, how do you even start? I think... That's a really complicated one. So in Kingman, I didn't have friends in Kingman because I didn't go to school in Kingman, right? I just moved with my sister, hadn't ever begun middle school or anything like that. Really, Kingman's a really closed off type of community. Um, Neighbors don't really talk to each other. It's kind of just figure your life out and get it done. So I didn't have friends in Kingman. I can't speak on that. Surprise was really interesting to me because I'd never, even though I'd lived in like rural America, I'd never lived in like a suburb before. And I think surprise in itself is a very suburbia type environment. It's very conservative, very, how do you say, like, I I guess it's closed off, but also kind of like nobody wants to hear your opinion regardless of what you think type of environment. Oh, okay. And does that differ from like small town conservatism? Yeah, so I think small town conservatism is more like, you know, we'll listen to what you have to say. We'll disagree with it, but we'll listen to what you have to say. um, And regardless of the differences that we have with one another, we'll still find common ground and look to find the best in one another. If that makes sense. Like there's real relationships. Exactly. Exactly. In in smaller towns, because you know that, you know, everybody's a neighbor and Mm -hmm. you have such a small town population, you have to work through your differences. I mean, you can't hate every single person who's a Democrat in your town (laughs) or you're not going to have any friends. So it's just, you know, you have to get over everything. Um, Whereas in suburbia, it literally is like, you're a Democrat. I hate you. I don't want to talk to you ever again. Don't come over to my house. Like, end of story. 
And so I had a lot of trouble in surprise more than I did in those smaller towns because it was literally just Mormon, Republican, conservatism, anything that divides us, divides us in that set in stone. I see. So it was really hard for me to find friends there. Um, I remember I was friends with like all the girls, but I wasn't out yet. So I was just like, I was friends with all the girls and everybody thought I was like a ladies man. And I was like, no, I promise I'm not a ladies man, guys. Um, But I I had girlfriends, gross. Um, And and yeah, after that, I moved to Tolosan and Tolosan was like my, like the place I felt the most comfortable. It's smaller to an extent. It's kind of suburban, but it's also very urban to to an extent. It's racially diverse. It's mainly democratic. Um, and I think in that type of community, nobody cares about your background. Nobody cares about, you know, where you come from. I mean, we all have struggles in life and that community in itself is we have struggles. We don't care what your past is. As long as you don't cause trouble, like you're fine. Um, and that's where I found like my biggest friend group. And, it kind of um, sounds like in, in surprise, not only are there really stark political lines, but mm-hmm. there's also like real cultural divisions. Yes. And in Tolleson, it's a little bit more open. Yeah. And then that's that's where you were actually able to make friends is, is in Tolleson. For sure. I, I think that in Tolleson, it was just a community where I felt like I didn't have to be some sort of like perfect picture. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Surprise, like that is the perfect picture. I mean, it's people that go to church every Sunday at the exact nine o'clock time. They are friends with their pastors. You know, they have dinner every single night as a family. My family wasn't like that. We didn't have dinner at the normal times. We like ate dinner in front of TVs and, you know, we had a lot of family dysfunction. Um, And I think that was something that I could relate to in Tolison as kind of grim as that is. It's just, I guess, a sense of belonging. Yeah, I, and I guess that could be grim, but it's also like, this is my real life, and here's other people who have mm-hmm. a real life that I can I can relate to. Exactly. And that's nice. Moving back to Kansas, it sounds like you weren't in Kansas for very long before you came back to Arizona. Yeah, so I was in Kansas only for my freshman year of high school. Okay. So I, I literally went, I think it was like, I think I flew out there nine days before freshman year started. Okay. And I was in a a town called Liberty. I'd never lived in this town before. I didn't know anybody in the town, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it was, it was, it was a bit of a change for sure. Uh, It it was a little bit more of like a liberal, more open town, but I mean, it's still Kansas. I mean, you can't, Kansas is Kansas. It's not going to be anything um, super different from the surrounding communities. Mm -hmm. So um, I had a lot of friends in Liberty. That's where I like got into like theater and like drama and things like that. But um, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting place. Were you ever out in Kansas and did you ever have to figure out what that would be like? I came out in Kansas actually in my fresh, in my freshman year is when I came out. So I had, um, well, so I came out to my friends first I was like, hey, guys, I'm gay. And everyone was like, we know. Like, you're not, you're not, this is not a shocking announcement. Like, we all know you literally wear, like, turtlenecks and trench coats and booted heels. Like, save yourself, honey. Um, and, and so I, that wasn't much of anything. I mean, everybody was very accepting of it. I think people thought that I was more annoying in my freshman year than I was, um, like, they weren't, they didn't care that I was gay. Oh, they were just yeah. like, you are just like annoying and gross like shut up <laughs> that's just a freshman experience. exactly i was like it's you're a freshman like everybody gets it yeah um but for my family it was it was a little bit different so 
my dad and my sister, very accepting. My grandparents, very accepting. But my mom, on the other hand, wasn't as accepting okay. as everybody else, which I thought was super surprising because my mom was like the fierce Obama support. I mean, we, we li- I can remember in her bedroom a massive Obama painting on her wall that oh, said wow. hope. And okay. like, I was yeah. like, okay, this is, if, in, if I can come out to anybody, it's my mom. Yeah. I know it, it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all, actually. It was very much judgment focused. And a lot of, uh, I think in her eyes, it was, she didn't believe that her son could be gay, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but it, yeah. It can be really difficult coming out to someone who you feel like a, is a really close yeah. confidant or supporter in your family. And then figuring out, oh, this isn't something I even knew could be the reaction. Yeah. You have either like, this is going to go great or it's going to go poorly. And then something else completely else happens. And it's, where do you go from there, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I I thought that my mom was my biggest supporter. Mm -hmm. And I quickly figured out that I think that support was almost like a almost like a closet, if you will, right? When the closet's open and the light's on, you can see everything inside, right? But when the closet door is closed, you see nothing, right? And after I came out, the closet door was always closed. I could never see the real side of my mom. And my mom treated me completely different after I came out. I'm talking shorter conversations, shorter check-ins about my health. Mom, like, completely left, like, I guess that core part of my life that I really needed as, you know, a uprising teenager. Right. I mean, everyone really needs that, at least from someone in their life. Then you came back to Arizona. Um, Did you still end up in kind of a, like, more rural, suburban area? Or did you move into, like, the Phoenix area more? Phoenix Union, baby. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I I moved right into downtown Phoenix. I went to North High School, which is, like, very, very... I think the, like, percentile of, like, uh, Hispanic and black students is, like, 94% of the district. Mm -hmm. So it, it literally was, like, me going from all white, maybe two people of color Mm -hmm. in a school to me being the prolific minority of the school. And that, that was really interesting for me to go through and be like, wow, white privilege. Like, what does that mean? And like really coming to terms with, you know, the problems facing communities of color across Arizona and I guess across the nation. Yeah. And I, I imagine that that kind of environment if your reaction is to think really critically about yourself and your experience and how you relate to people could be a really good kind of furnace to forge you as someone who's going to go to the Capitol and (laughs) and have the kinds of interactions you've been having there. Do you think that was the case? Like when you were doing that kind of introspection or looking at your position in the world, were you having that as a conversation with other people or just kind of on your own time? I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, I think... For the most part, for myself, it was hard to understand a lot of things. If I was just going home and being like, wow, like, this is terrible. Like, my friends are living food stamp to food stamp. Like, a lot of my friends have to deal with police injustice in their communities because Phoenix Police Department is so terrible. Um, and I, I, I couldn't understand at the beginning 
why these things were happening until I would have those conversations with other people. And it, it almost reminds me of like kindergarten, like when you're learning your ABCs, right? It's oh, yeah. super unnatural to you. And you're like, what is happening? Like, what is going on around me? And that is almost how those conversations would go was me just being like, why? Why are these things like this? How do these things get better? How do these things happen? Um, And people just having to be really patient with me and be like, well, this is why it's because of the pigmentation of my skin rather than any other problem. Or it's because of my social class or my, you know, whatever it may be. Um, And I think those conversations are really what have built me to be this advocate for everybody rather than just an advocate for myself or, you know, one small part of a community in Arizona. Yeah. And it sounds like part of what you're saying is like interrogating the system. Like what are the different systems at at play here and how do they interact with each other? Was your high school a place that nurtured that from like an academic standpoint? I think my school tried its best to make it clear that there were problems in America, but I don't think it was as obvious as like quote unquote, like critical race theory. Like it wasn't like what people believe it is where it's like, this is injustice. Like America is bad, like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think they realistically told us, you know, these things are what is impacting America nowadays. So when we talk about like the industrial revolution or the reconstruction era, they, my history teachers would really go in depth and talk about the things that actually happened. I mean, I don't even think we touched a textbook for the majority of the time I went to high school because they knew that the textbooks wouldn't discuss how history actually happened and how it affected um, the communities that I was going to school with. So I think it's like ish and ish. I think that yes, my high school kind of prepared us for like injustice in America, but I also think they kind of wanted us to learn it out on our own and, you know, really understand that there's problems in society and, you know, you'll have well, to deal with them as you go. I mean, that actually seems good is, yeah. is for them to kind of leave it up to your own yeah. discovery process. So then you get started at the Capitol while you're still in high school and you're skipping a lot of classes to be there. <laughs> yeah. Did that cause problems for you at school? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, uh, I actually remember like I think it was like mid-April. Mm-hmm. I'd gotten a call from my dad. I hadn't, I hadn't been telling my parents, obviously, that I was skipping school to go testify down at the Capitol. I mean, they knew yeah. I was testifying, but they didn't know I was just, like, leaving campus. Right. So I, I don't know what they thought I was doing, but whatever. <laughs> and I, I just remember my dad walking into my room one day, and he was like, Hey, all of your teachers just had a meeting with me. You're failing, like, four classes, oh, yeah. and you're going to graduate in, like, less than a month. Like, you got to get, like, your stuff together, dude. Like, this yeah. is bad. And I think at the time I was just so focused on like, oh my God, like there's so many bad bills at the legislature and these are all bills that matter way more than like my education or whatever it may be. And um, I I didn't, I guess, realize at the time that, you know, like these teachers could quite literally just fail me for not coming to class. Like they they didn't care that I was going down to the legislature and advocating on behalf of my peers or even them. Right. Um, So, I mean, I really had to get myself together and um like after i don't even remember what the last bill was that session that i testified on but after some point in time Mm -hmm. i was completely focused on school i was not i could not care less about the legislator at the time Um, yeah i mean that that's that makes sense it's probably the best for sure i think it's really easy when you first get into politics oh yeah to 
be kind of overwhelmed by the weight of everything, but not overwhelmed to the point where you shut down, but instead like, this is the thing I need to do to the exclusion of everything else. Because you get a taste of like, I can change things. And then you get kind of hooked on that. I know I've had this experience. I know like so many people who have had this experience and you can burn yourself out or you can just kind of miss the real opportunities to make long-term change, Mm -hmm. I think. But then it sounds like you, you did make that, you did get to that realization and then kind of reset. Yeah, really, really quickly I did. And I think even after I graduated, I was hesitant to go back into advocacy um, for yeah. a little bit. I was like, well, you know, I, I don't want to get so entrenched in this advocacy um, that I, you know, forget to do ABC or forget to look at apartments or, you know, whatever it right. may be. And so I I really stopped doing it until, um, I guess, probably until the fall of Roe is when I stopped paying attention to things um, because I was just like, why does anything matter? Like, does anything really matter other than what I'm actually doing in my life versus what I'm doing for others? And so... Oh, interesting. Yeah. I I guess that's a rational reaction, especially... So you graduated from high school last year. Yeah. Graduating from high school is, for most people, it's a huge decision point, right? And you... Actually, I would tell almost anyone graduating from high school to focus on themselves to the exclusion <laughs> yeah. of, of worrying about helping other people, at least for a little bit. It sounds like what you did end up choosing is to really throw yourself back into advocacy. Nope. How did you make that decision? I, uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually really funny because I did literally just say that helping others was something I was excluding, but I think when the fall of Roe happened, mm-hmm. I saw a lot of hopelessness in a lot of people's eyes. I saw a lot of scare, like fear, in a lot of people's eyes, including my sister, including my stepmom. And while my stepmom and my sister, you know, they had to go to work. They had to, you know, live their lives. I was in this moment of, what can I do? Like, I'm a cis man, you know, I'm a gay man. I have a lot of time on my hands. I know a lot of people in these advocacy spaces. I could make change in some way, shape, or form, or advocate for change. Or I can sit back and let other people do it and maybe fail. And so when the fall of Roe happened, I really mobilized in. I started working with some organizations like called Human Rights Fighters, which was the super grassroots organization. I had like five organizers who had no organizing experience, mind you. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we started really like rallying up at the Capitol every single night. And I think that's really what pushed me back into the advocacy space was like, oh, wow, like something bad happened. I have to do something because if I don't do something, I'm going to regret it later. And so, yeah, yeah, from then on, there was like advocacy for reproductive rights. And then from that space went to education. That's when I ran for office. And uh, yeah. What did you run for? Phoenix Union High School District Governing Board. It's a school board. Yeah. Uh, it was it was interesting. A lot of people don't have that experience of running for office, period, right? Most yep. people don't run for office ever in their life. Yep. But also, most people don't run for office when they're young. Yeah. I actually would love to tell a lot of young people to run for office, like, fully knowing they might lose, because it's just an interesting experience, and you can learn a lot from it. Uh, even just what you were saying about volunteering with this like total grassroots thing, five people with no experience, that's a great environment to learn everything, yep. right? Uh, what was your campaign experience like? Hard. Very, yeah. very difficult. A lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. Uh, I, I think 
the thought of running for office versus the action of running for office <laughs> is a lot easier. So when I, I originally I decided to run when I was still a senior, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I remember sitting in, I think it was like my old geometry teacher's classroom or something. It was like a few friends and me, and we we're like on our computers, like researching like why our school board was so bad because we had SROs on campus and none of us liked the SROs. It was something like that. And um, yeah, I know that's a big fight in Phoenix Union. Oh yeah, it's huge. It's like massive. There's there uh, there's a uh, Abia Khan who is goes to Harvard now. She used to be Aaron Marquez's campaign manager, who's one of the current school board members. Yeah. Like, that woman is still pushing the fight against Phoenix Dean. And I'm like, Abia, you live in Boston. <laughs> like, what, what is happening? So, yeah, it's, it's a huge fight. But when I had started, it was like, well, I could run against Stephanie Bata, who's this massively influential politician. Yeah. And I can push some change and hopefully I can win, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the original thought, was like, I want to push a campaign that's effective and leadership that's effective and leadership from a student perspective, not from a board member perspective, somebody that's actually in these schools. Right. Um, and Stephanie Pata obviously hadn't had that. I mean, she'd been out of high school for, I think, 20 years or something like that. So um, I thought about running, and then I finally decided on running after devouring master's policy books that I couldn't even understand half of the language in, but I tried my best. I filed. I started filling out all of my campaign finance reports by myself, which like, again, for an 18 year old is like really strange at the time. Like I'm about to graduate high school. And instead of doing my homework, I'm filing a campaign finance report. Very strange. Also a little terrifying. Yeah. A little, you don't want to get that wrong. (laughs) Exactly. Like it's pretty scary. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, after, after a while, I, I ran with it. I mean, I I went and knocked on doors after school. I talked yeah. to community members. I engaged organizations, and it was great. And then um, and then I dropped out. So I ended up dropping out because, um, one, we knew that our signatures weren't going to be there. We knew that our signatures were going to get disqualified. Yeah. And um, I'd also been in and out of the hospital because of my epilepsy. And so it was like, you know, do I continue to try to push a fight for effective leadership when I know that I'm probably going to get disqualified in the process, and do I continue to do this when I know that with my illness that's uncontrolled at this point, at that point in time, I'm not going to probably be an effective leader. And so it was like, okay, I'll drop out for now and we'll see what happens later in the future. And so I dropped out. That's a great way to get to know your neighbors though, is knocking on a bunch of doors (laughs) and seeing how they react to you. Oh yeah. I I think all of my neighbors knew me extremely well because I'd go to their doors and I'd be like, Mm -hmm. hi, I'm Elijah Watson. I'm a senior in high school and I'm running for school board. And they're like, are you even qualified? Like, do you even, are you legally even allowed to run for office? And I'd be like, um, yeah, I, I mean, I am, but like, are you going to vote for me? Like, And it was just like, I'd have these like 30, like every door mm-hmm. would be like a 25 minute minimum conversation oh, because wow, these okay. people would be like, why? Like you're yeah. 18 years old. Like, why are you running for office? Like, is this like a stepping stone? And I'd be like, no, I just love, I love education policy and I want to see significant change in our schools. And yeah. I think a lot of people were amazed by that. So. I mean, it is pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. Like, true. I mean, I, I, I've brought this up with other, with other like student organizers is that there's, there's people who 
get into like debate club and policy work and are interested in running for office and getting everything on their resume. And it is as a stepping stone. It's not that they don't care about things genuinely, but it is like this sets me up for this career. It sets me up for this internship or that position. And then there's people who are just like, no, I just want to do this. I don't want to do this as a student. I want to do this as me. I want to do it in a real way. And that's always surprising for people, I think, when they see like someone who is a student saying, no, I just want to run for office because I care about this thing. And I think that's that was the thing that was the hardest about running as a young person was a lot of people did genuinely believe that my plan was to go on school board and then do what every other set legislator do, does, which is they serve on the school board for eight years or four years or whatever it may be. And then they go to like law school or they run for the legislature right. or they run for some type of higher office. I had no interest in serving in a partisan body where people argued over things and got nothing done. Like that was never my goal. Like I, I had no interest at all. And I think it was even harder when I would go to organizations and they'd be like, we'll support you eight years down the line when you decide to run for the state ledge. And I'd be like, that's not what I want. Like, I just want to better educational systems in Arizona. And they'd be like, Oh, okay. Like weird. Uh, like it was, well, Very strange. I, I mean, I, I I don't know how they were thinking, but I know that a lot of the time when people see someone young running for office or just they see anyone running for school board, they kind of think of them as like stock. Like here is a pool of candidates who might do something bigger later mm-hmm. on, especially with young people. And what you were looking for was different. You wanted their support for what you were doing then. Yeah, I actually, I, I had thought that running for school board was the least political thing that I could do, which I thought was really funny for me is like, I'd come from this like, oh, going on to the state legislature and bickering with Republicans to like, I want to go to the literally least political place, nonpartisan office mm-hmm. for a term of four years elected by the people of Arizona. Yeah. Um, I, I again, no interest in, in running for some type of higher political office. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to... Yeah build significant change so we've run into a couple things where you've mentioned the legislature is not accessible to students and you mentioned dropping out of your race to deal with your epilepsy those are both major accessibility problems for for local government do you feel like there is a way to work around that i mean how how have you been working around it since then um I think, well, as far as my epilepsy goes, I mean, I take medication for that. And so yeah. that's that's not something that I really have to grapple with on the daily. I mean, like, the thought of it is, like, bad because I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I could, like, seize in any second and, like, die. But right. that's not really, I think, something that comes to mind, like, when I'm at the legislature. Yeah. I think being a student does come to mind a lot because I do engage with students a lot to this day of being yeah. like, hey, there's this bill that's going to be heard in the legislature in Senate education at 2 p.m. Like, try to come down for this. And they're like, I can't. Like I'm in college or I'm in, yeah. I'm in high school. Like I, I can't, I, I can't ex- exactly. Yeah. I have, I have biology. I can't go in and testify on some bill. And it's like, yeah. well, I, I get that. And it's like, yeah, no, it, it sucks. And it, it also sucks when legislators, you know, continuously say, well, we haven't heard from students. We haven't heard from students at all on this issue. And it's like, well, it's because you schedule your committee times for times that students can't attend. Right. So, yeah. I mean, what do you think is the, this isn't really, I guess, a, a personal question at this point, but what do you think is the way to get more people to be there without having to make those compromises? 
I think, well, okay, as far as students go, I've I've long pushed with committee chairs that they push their committee times down to a time that is more accessible for students, especially those mm-hmm. committees that really deal with the issues that are facing youth more than anything, like MAPS committee, military, uh, military and public safety committee, where mm-hmm. it's like guns and things like that. I've always oh, right, offered yeah. Yeah. that those committees be pushed down because students are the people facing the epidemic of school shootings yeah. across our country. Um, and same with education. I've always pushed for education committee to be pushed down to be meeting at like 4.30 mm-hmm. so that students from across the valley can go and attend education committee and speak out because it is their schools. Yeah. Um, of course, I've gotten a lot of pushback. I've had a lot of legislators say, you know, well, I live in Prescott. And I don't. I I need to. Right. I need to drive home at an earlier time. And I know the committee's going to go on for four or five hours. I don't want to go home at ten. And I'm like, well, shouldn't have ran for office, I guess. Um, but I, I mean, obviously, they don't. You know, they don't, I think they don't it is a real much. obstacle. Like there, there is yeah. some stuff that for them they really can't work around. They're yeah. getting paid twenty four thousand dollars exactly. a year to be there. Um, so most of them have another job. Mm-hmm. But I do think you're right. There needs to be proactive changes to get more people in. For sure. I also just think, like, with running for office, I have whatever host of, like, technically disabilities from, like, autism and bipolar and things like Mm -hmm. that. So when I was young and I would think about running for office, because I think for a lot of people that's something you think about, uh, I really felt like, no, this probably is not the best choice for me to put myself out in that kind of public way where I know at a certain point I could have a major depressive episode and have to drop out or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, not even actually having that be a problem, but just saying, who knows? I don't yeah. think I should put myself in that position. Exactly. But what I think that leads to is an absence, just like there's an absence of students at the legislature, we have an absence of people with disabilities in elected office. And I, I, I don't know. I'd love to see that change. I don't know if you have any insight on that because it's it's more personal for you than it is for most people. I don't I, – I think that's a really hard thing to grasp around because I also think that campaigning is really what takes people away from participating or, or yeah. running for elected office. I mean, when you really think about it, as, as a candidate, right, I would literally spend as much time as I possibly could – outside knocking on doors. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have the money for staff. Right. Right. So I, I had like $3,000 in my campaign bank account that was mostly donated from, you know, uh, family. Yeah. And I would go and knock on doors as much as humanly possible, sometimes until like 7.30 p.m. So I'd get off school at 4, go on until 7.30 p.m. And I think for a lot of people that have disabilities, that's not something that a lot of people can do. Um, right. It's just it, physically not it, an option. It, exactly. Like physically yeah. and sometimes even mentally and emotionally, it's not really an option to go door to door around right. every single precinct and sometimes environments that are incredibly uncomfortable to you. Right. Um, and explaining yourself and putting yourself in that vulnerable state of like, well, you know, you're probably going to disagree with me on every single thing that I say, but I still have to appeal to you because I need your vote. Otherwise, I'm not going to win. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean I don't I don't personally have I guess much insight on how to make that a better environment because I think that culture in itself is just But you have the experience of what the obstacles are, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And I mean campaigning most of the canvassing that people have to do is in the hottest months of the year. Oh, yeah. So Oh yeah. It's uh there's a lot of risks for anyone. And and the skills of campaigning I've always thought are just not really aligned with the 
qualities of a of a good elected leader. Not that they're incompatible, but they're not the same thing. Yeah. They're just different skill sets. So, yeah, I, I I agree with that. I think a lot of um, elected officials should focus more on you know building that relationship mm-hmm. with voters rather than acting like um, a politician. Um, I think that's something we see a lot in campaign culture. Um, I mean, I've worked as an organizer on two campaigns now, and um, we see a lot of elected officials that go into these environments like, oh, I'm a politician. I have to act like a politician. And if I don't right. act like a politician, I'm not going to get votes. And I'm like, that's not actually not how you build a good structure of you know volunteers or even a structure of voters That's true, yeah um well, unless you can be incredibly charismatic i guess and get a lot of yeah, people really excited about you i i just think a lot of campaigns or I, I guess a lot of elected officials that run campaigns um really try to appeal to people as i am a perfect person i don't have struggles in life and the struggles that i have had i've completely overcame which is why you should oh, vote for right. me yeah, and i'm like yeah. no that's it's actually not what I look for in a candidate. I look for someone that has problems in their lives right now that, you know, they could definitely legislate and overcome um, as laws yeah. and, you know, people that are real working class type of people that, you know, want to get shit done. Yeah. Well, that's so. what I appreciate with the legislators who are kind of most open to having meetings and conversations mm-hmm. is they're usually people who, even if they're not actually going to take what I say into account, mm-hmm aren't pretending that they're so important that they're not a real person anymore, right? Um, I love, for example, you mentioned Steve Kaiser at the beginning as, you know, someone who sponsored a problematic bill. But when I email him, he he signs his email Steve. He doesn't sign it Senator Kaiser. He signs it Steve. And I think that's nice because it's, it's just weird for me, and maybe this is my autism speaking, but it is really weird for me not to just call someone by their first name. Just in oh, yeah. general. Yeah, I, I actually, I have a, a problematic tendency at the legislator to call all the legislators by their first names. Yeah. <laughs> like, in the, in like, sometimes the worst moments, like, I've I've had legislators come out in the hallway, oh, and yeah. they're like, they're ready to confront me on something that I said in committee, and I'm like, Diane, listen. And I'm like, oh, sorry, that doesn't sound right. And they're like, excuse me, <laughs> like, what did you just say? Um, but, I mean, I, I think that it's like, you know, you, you have to make that environment a little bit less um, strict, a little le- like yeah. a little bit more chillaxed. Um, that's what I, I, another thing that I think is least accessible Absolutely. about that type of environment is like you're expected to be the most proper person of all times. You know, right. even when in committee you have to refer to the chair before you talk to the senator. Like it's, there's right. a lot going on there. Um, and some and, of that is just rules that are easy to memorize mm-hmm. and some of it, is actually exclusionary. Exactly. And so, yeah, I, I I try to, when I'm with senators, I try my best to make it the most unprofessional sometimes environment. Because I, I think it I think it puts people in their place a little bit of like, we're literally the same person. The only difference between us is that you were elected by, you know, 277 something thousand people and I'm not elected. Right. Um, we're both yeah. taxpayers. We both live in one-story houses, yeah. what's the difference between us? And, and you're both there for generally the same, same exactly. purpose or to work on the same things. Mm-hmm. You're still very young. I mean, you just graduated from high school. You're spending a lot of time at the Capitol. Um, so I think you mentioned before that you, you didn't go to college. Do you plan to go later or is it just kind of on hold for now? I think it's on hold for okay. now. Yeah. Um, I think I've tried... Or I think I've not even tried. I think I've really pushed myself out there in the advocacy sphere 
um, and even in the you know political organizing sphere of things, as this person that wants to really develop change, whether that's through yeah. lobbying, whether that's through working on campaigns, working in campaign management, whatever it is, yeah. I obviously want to see change. And I think a lot of people are noticing that quicker and quicker as time goes by. And I think for me, as much as I would love to go to college and mm-hmm. as much as I definitely want to learn more about education policy and public policy in general right, yeah. and really get a screw on it, I think that a lot of the real world experience that I'm getting out of things is somewhat more beneficial than I think it would be of me sitting in a classroom and hearing some professor that probably has never lobbied a day in their life talk about, you know, how to lobby. So right now it's on hold, but I mean, I'm always open to it in the future for sure. That makes sense. I mean, I think it's, it's really, I would never tell someone you shouldn't go to college, Mm -hmm. but you don't need a college degree to engage in, in politics on a professional level or on a personal level. Mm-hmm. I think that that's another example of how it can be inaccessible. You mentioned it at the beginning. They kind of expect people to come in and wear a suit and have credentials. And those people are not always bringing the most insightful comments, but they belong there because they decided that was going to be their, you know, the end of their path instead of the beginning of their path. I mean, I can tell you... I, I can probably name off a list of lobbyists that go to the legislature every single week and can't cite a thing of case law or can't sign any piece of relevant previous laws or, you know, talk about and their experience how things are affecting them. Oh, yeah. Whereas, you know, us grassroots type lobbyists can go in and say, you know, let, let me let me spell out ARS for you and let's let's talk about previous case law from like nineteen oh three and you know things like that and i think that really shows that you know really anyone can do this type of work you don't necessarily need a bachelor's or a master's degree would it be preferred absolutely but you know if you put your mind to it and you you know work your ass off i mean you can really do a lot yeah i think there's just like a leap of faith you have to take mm-hmm. where you say oh i can just do this mm-hmm. and then if you apply yourself to it a lot of the time you can just do it. You can just make change. You can have those conversations. You can be there. Uh, but there are those structural things that do, oh, that do sure. really get in the way. For sure. Uh, well, uh, yeah, we are out of time. But I don't know. Thanks for talking with me. This was really cool. I, yeah, I felt like I've, I learned a lot about it. I kids. really enjoyed it. I, I don't talk about like my like experiences of going through these things. So awesome. it was nice. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks again to Elijah for being my guest on this week's episode of the podcast, and thanks to all of you for listening to the show. I'm always looking for more guests to interview on the podcast. So if you're queer and you live in Arizona, I want to talk to you about your communities, how they've changed over time, how you've changed them, and how they've changed you. You can sign up to be a guest at equalityarizona.org stories, or you can email us at hello at equalityarizona.org.